Let me pray for our, our message this morning. Lord, as, as Darren prayed, those words just sunk deep into my heart. would pray that these words that I might speak now might be fresh words. That they would, would find a place in our heart that's not the same old, same old. It's not coming to church week in, week out because it's what we always do. But may we come again fresh. I, I pray that they would stir us um, God, again, with a renewed vigor to seek Jesus with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, Lord, I pray that you would work even today in the midst of my message. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christianity is a a bloody religion. It has its roots in Judaism, which is known for its many, many animal sacrifices. When God made the covenant with Abraham, blood was flowing. Perhaps you remember that God had Abraham take a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and Abraham was to take those animals and cut them and rip them apart. And he would put one on this side, and he would put one on this side, and God, when He ratified the covenant, walked between these fleshes, these carcasses of animals, indicating that He Himself would keep the promises. Just imagine an animal cut in half, blood flowed. And when a sign of the covenant came, the sign of circumcision, the bloody sign. When God made the covenant with Moses, as Darren read, the young men of the sons of Israel offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. To make an offering, you need to cut the throat of an animal. Blood needs to flow. And you put it on top of an altar and smoke goes up and the blood trickles down. When the first priests were consecrated and set apart for service, some cows and rams were sacrificed and their blood was applied to the ears and the thumbs and the big toes of the priests-to-be. When God explained how the people would come to worship Him, God gave them all sorts of sacrifices to perform. There were burnt offerings. There were sin offerings and guilt offerings and peace offerings. And every one of these offerings demanded animals to be slaughtered and sacrificed. Many animals lost their lives for the sake of sacrifice. Whether it was bulls or or goats or, or heifers or lambs or pigeons or turtle doves, many of them died and their blood flowed freely down the altar. During every feast and festival the Jews would celebrate, it was required that blood would be shed. The Day of Atonement, ten animals were sacrificed. Every year, ten animals. On the Feast of Trumpets, ten animals sacrificed. On the Feast of Weeks, eleven animals were sacrificed. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, seventy-seven animals were sacrificed. There's one on each week. There's several in each week. During the Feast of Tabernacles, 189 animals would be sacrificed that week. And when you combine the required sacrifices of festivals with the sacrifices where people come to offer sacrifice for the sins during the day of Passover, I've heard it said that the, the numbers of animals are so great that blood trickled down through the streets of Jerusalem. Christianity is a bloody religion. When the temple was dedicated in Solomon's day, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep were sacrificed to the Lord. 
22,000 oxen. My wife's from California, and um, I went to school in Los Angeles. She's from San Francisco and Los Angeles. And, and along there, there's this big stretch of road that, that, that goes there. It's, it's I-5. How many of you ever driven I-5 between California and Los Angeles? I'm not sure if you remember this, but about halfway in between, there's this cattle farm. You remember that, any of you? <laughs> so, Darcy, you remember it? What do you remember about it? It stinks, first of all. You're driving down I-5 and it stinks. But anything else you remember? Yvonne, do you remember anything? It is just unbelievably huge. I mean, cows, like, everywhere. I don't know if they have 22,000 cows there or not. Maybe they do. But 22,000 is a boatload of oxen and 120,000 sheep. Just such is the glory of God on that one day. And now all the blood that was shed through all the centuries in Judaism headed to anticipation of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And His sacrifice was a bloody sacrifice. How many of you have seen Mel Gibson's film, um, The Passion of the Christ? <clears throat> Some of you. Not, not all of you. Um, this is okay. I know when that thing came out, I saw it and I said, I'm not going to watch that thing. I mean, just uh, every picture I saw, every promo of it, just had this bloody Jesus and any trailer I saw, I just saw Him being whipped and beaten and I said, I'm not into horror films. I, I don't need to look at that kind of stuff. And, and in fact, I, I was especially cringing just thinking about, about nails into the wrists. For some reason, that just cringes me more than anything else. And so I didn't watch the film until I was going to preach on the crucifixion. And I felt like as a pastor, as a preacher, you know, this might help give me some insight. And so I remember watching it. And it was a bloody, gory scene the flogging of Jesus, ripping flesh from His back, the crown of thorns, Jesus carrying the, the cross, the splinters, ripping His flesh. But listen, such is the reality of our faith. Christianity is a bloody religion and Jesus died in a bloody mess. Just think about the blood that Christ shed. He died on Calvary. Before he's arrested, he's dripping, sweat, sweating, drops of blood. During the trial, before the Jewish people, Jesus was beaten with, his, with their fists. He was slapped in the face. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if blood started to flow from his face at that time. When Jesus was taken out to be scourged, it was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution. They wanted to weaken the victim before he gets to the cross. He would have been stripped of his clothes. He would have had his hands tied around a pole. They would have taken whips, which were intermingled and tied with stones or with sharp sheep bones. And the Roman soldiers, one would have hit him and then another one would have been in tandem and hit him and lacerated him on the back. The Journal of American Medicine wrote a, a great article in 1986 describing the physical sufferings of the death of Christ from an anatomy and physiology perspective. And, and here's what they said to describe the flogging. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions and leather thongs and the sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous, subcutaneous tissues. 
And then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. And then, you remember, after the flogging, the the Roman soldiers intertwined and made a crown of thorns, which then they took and pressed upon the head of Jesus. And and the blood would have flowed out of his face and out of his head. And he he would have probably trickled down his mouth and would have tasted the blood much as we taste sweat when we're out exercising. At one point, the soldiers gave him a reed in his right hand to mock him as a king. After they mocked him, they, they took the reed out of his hand and they beat him on the head, driving the, those thorns deeper and deeper into his head. The cross itself was a, a bloody affair. Jesus hung on the cross by nails in his hands and in his feet would have been dripping down. Blood would have flowed freely from those wounds. And upon dying, when the soldiers pierced his side and immediately blood and water came out of him. Christianity is a bloody religion. And, it, and we ought not to shy away from it. We ought not to shy away from this because it's the blood of Christ that saves us. His violent death upon the cross is the means through which God cleanses us from our sins. Cleanse us to walk before Jesus holy and blameless before Him. There are some that try to clean up Christianity. They try to make it about just God and love and put the cross in a secondary place. They try to downplay it a little bit. They don't try to bring it out. And yet, if you want to remove the cross's gruesome scenes, then Christianity will lose its power. Because it's right here. It's the core of our faith. Christ crucified upon the cross for our sins. The horrors of sin demand a sacrifice and Jesus pays the demand through the bloody death upon the cross of Christ. Now, I feel the need to make a comment here about the blood of Christ. There's an issue that sometimes arises because people take... Many take a very mystical view of the blood of Jesus. I mean, we, we sang this morning, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their filthy stains. And, you know, he's picturing just a, a, a vein cut of Emmanuel and, and bleeding out, just spewing out this blood and we're cleansed. Listen, that's not real, okay? That's a picture. Talking about the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. It's poetic. Talking about the, the cleansing power, the violent death of Jesus. But there are some who picture this vial of blood of Jesus in heaven, which, which is constantly taken out and, and applied almost in a Catholic sacra, sacramental way. And I just say that that's not true. There is no vial of blood up, up, up in heaven someplace. As Phil Johnson says it well, when Scripture speaks of Christ's blood... The expression is normally a reference to a sacrificial atoning death, not the actual red and white corpuscles. 
and the vivid language of our hymns about the cleansing ability of the wonder-working power of the blood and a fountain filled with blood is not to be taken literally. There's no magical or mystical cleansing property in the red fluid and there's no container of blood in heaven that is somehow literally applied to sinners. Such language of speaking of blood is meant to speak of Christ's sacrificial atonement. Just as when Paul spoke of the preaching of the cross, he had in mind the death of Christ, not the literal wooden instrument upon which the Savior died. We're not to think of a piece of wood in the point of our preaching. What happened on the cross is what is efficacious for our salvation. Not some magical power in the wood itself. Similarly, with the blood of Christ, it is the violent pouring out blood in Christ's sacrificial death that saves us. Not some supernatural property of the fluid itself. Now to be sure, Jesus shed His blood to atone for our sins. And and He couldn't have died any other way than a bloody death. If Jesus had, had died by drowning, that would not have been sufficient for our sins. Had Jesus been poisoned, that would not have atoned for our sins either. The Scriptures are clear. Only a bloody death atones. And so please, church family, don't shy away from the gory realities of our faith. The author of the book of Hebrews doesn't, especially in our text this morning. I know this has been a longer introduction, but that's for a purpose. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. This morning we've been working through the book of Hebrews the past several months. I think we've been maybe six or seven months at it, just taking the next text. We've come to chapter 9, verses 15 to 22. As I read these verses for you, I want you to notice how many times the word death and how many times the word blood appears. Kids, you've got your children's notes. Maybe you can circle every time death or blood appears. And then I'll ask you how many times. And I'm going to ask you also which verse one of these words don't appear, okay? Hebrews 9, verse 15. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, He sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Okay, how many times do we see the word blood or death appear? Kids, how many times? Seven times. Is that all? I got nine. Okay, which verse did death or blood not occur? Did you catch that? Yeah, it speaks though about death. You're right. I, that was supposed to be a trick question, but you guys got it. It speaks about being dead. There are no verses that doesn't speak about blood or death in this whole, this whole passage. 
The key thought here in these verses comes in verse 22. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It's a key phrase. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The reason why Christianity is a bloody religion is because Christianity is a religion that's high on forgiveness. Because without blood, there is no forgiveness. For God to forgive a sin, there needs to be a sacrifice for sin. That's one of the fundamental laws of the universe. I mean, just as much as, as, as the law of gravity, two objects are mutually attracted to each other, proportional to their mass and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. That is a law of physics. That is a law of the universe that can't be broken. It's the laws of thermodynamics. For God to forgive a sin, there needs to be a sacrifice for that sin. The law of the universe. And that's the reason why God prescribed so many sacrifices in the Old Testament. They were to teach us again and again that God requires a sacrifice for sins. And it's blood that cleanses our souls without shedding of blood, as verse 22 says. There is no forgiveness. Now, I hope you catch the irony in these things. Mothers, maybe you did. I know my wife did as I talked to her about this text this week. There's hardly anything that stains a garment more than blood. I mean, your child's out in the jeans and running out in the yard and get some grass stains. Oh, those are hard, but you know you can shout that one out. Or you get some ketchup on your shirt. You can wash that one out, but you get some blood. And I know people throw away garments when they're stained by blood because it's so hard to... Wash those out. And yet, here it is. The blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. I love the description of the great multitude of the saints who come out of the great tribulation. It says in Revelation 7.14, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, obviously, it's a picture. It's not that Jesus has all this blood that He can wash a great multitude which no one can count. Even that right there might give you a hint that it's, it's a picture. But His physical blood would stain their garments. But the picture is here, the blood of Jesus actually makes white. It's like some chemistry experience that experiment that you, know, you, you take two things and put them together and they change a different color and they change white or they change clear. So also with the blood of Christ, you apply the blood of Christ to, to sinful people and they become white and pure and blameless and holy. That's just how God made the universe. What can wash away my sin? Everyone, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. My message this morning is entitled, Cleansed with Blood. That's what these verses in Hebrews 9 are teaching us this morning. Well, let's just jump into our text. Don't have an outline. I'm just going to walk through the, through the passages of Scripture this morning. Verse 15, For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now you read that verse, and at first instance, it's like, that's confusing. How many think this is confusing? I think it's confusing. All right? Let me read again. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. 
verse really addresses the question that arose in verses 13 and 14. In those, those verses, it speaks there about blood of bulls and goats and the ash of a heifer. They sprinkle those who have been defiled. They sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, right? They're, they're just outward, skin deep. But verse 14 speaks about how much more will the blood of Christ, who the, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your consciences from dead works to serve a living God. To cleanse deep within. And the question comes, well, the Old Testament sacrifices were just on the external, but Jesus and what He did is internal. Well, what about all those people who are only sanctified externally? How is it that they are forgiven or, or cleansed? How were the saints of the Old Testament saved? Were they saved with the sacrifices that deal only with the flesh? Or were they saved... Were they ever cleansed deep within? And throughout my years as a pastor, I've heard this question asked many times. Well, how are they saved in the Old Testament? It's a good question. Well, the answer to that question is that they're saved the same way we are, through the death of Christ. And that's what verse 15 is speaking about. There's a redemption that's taken place for the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's the redemption through the cross of Christ. But there is a difference. They were saved through a death that would come in the future, and we are saved through a death that came in the past. But it's the same death. It's the same blood. It's the same Christ. We are saved through the blood of Jesus. It's because, as verse 15 says, He's the mediator of a new covenant. A mediator is one who who stands between two parties. He seeks peace and harmony is what a mediator does. One party is at war with the other party and a mediator will come in and seek to bring them together. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus is the mediator between us and God. As 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And when it comes to the new covenant where, where God puts His laws into our minds and writes them on our hearts and when, when God becomes our God and where we become His people and when we know Him deep within and where God forgives us our sins and remembers our sins no more like Hebrews 8 speaks about in verses 10 through 14, the promise came through of the new covenant through Jesus Christ because He was the mediator of a new covenant. And that's the point of verse 15, right? This death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. And here we see the, the author of Hebrews mentioning those who sinned under the first covenant. They needed redemption. And, and how are they going to be redeemed? How is Moses going to be redeemed? And how is Joshua going to be redeemed? And how is David going to be redeemed? How is Jeremiah going to be redeemed? How is Ezekiel going to be redeemed? Not through the blood of bulls and goats, as it says in chapter 10, verse 4, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Oh, but in chapter 9, verse 13, there is a cleansing of the flesh, but the sin still remains there. You can't take away the sin. It, it, it still is there. You know, one of the conversations I always often have with my kids every time I discipline them is this. When they're, they've been disciplined, they're fussing and crying, I've got them on my lap, and I'm, 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 I'm expressing my love to them, and I'm kissing them, and, and then I explain to them, well, you sinned, right? And they say yes, and I said... That, that you need to be disciplined for that sin, yes? And, and, and in that, that's showing that Daddy loves for you, loves you, right? Yes. And, and I say, what does it do? Well, it, well, the rod takes away... In fact, it, it, foolishness is in your heart, and the, and the rod removes the foolishness, and the rod also gives you wisdom. 
sometimes I've taken a piece of, of toilet paper and I've just even kind of put it there and, and I said, here it is, and, and the rod will take that away. And, and then I say, do I forgive your sin? And, and, the, and the child says, yes. And I say, can I take away your sin? And the child says, no. Because I can't take away sin. I can forgive sin in the sense that, okay, you sinned, I'm going to look over that. But I can't take it away. Who can take away sin? Only Jesus can take away sins. Verse 4, it's in chapter 10, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take them away. But Jesus can take them away and He can carry them away. And the Old Testament saints, you name them, their sins are taken away as they believe and trust in God through Jesus Christ. Let me just show you this in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. You can turn there in your Bibles if you will because this, this kind of expands upon how people are saved in the Old Testament. It's an important passage of Scripture. It's one of the most difficult passages of Scripture. John Piper calls it the most important paragraph in the Bible because it explains fully how we're forgiven today and how the Old Testament saints were forgiven. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It says in chapter 3, verse 20, it's through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Law exposes sin, but now apart from the law, God reveals His righteousness, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness comes, we believe in God, He accredits our faith as righteousness to Him. And there's no distinction, right? Verse 23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us who are believed are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. We are justified by God's grace through the redemption, the sacrifice of Christ, which He displayed publicly as a propitiation. The propitiation was a bloody sacrifice. A bloody, wrath-appeasing sacrifice that demonstrated His righteousness. All right, there's lots of jewels here. We, we can't look at those. But we're going to focus here on 25b through 26. Because that's pertinent to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. This propitiation, this sacrifice of Jesus was to demonstrate His righteousness. So, the sacrifice of Jesus is a demonstration of the righteousness of God. Because, here's why. In the forbearance of God, or in the patience of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. Moses sinned, maybe He washed it on the outside, but God passed over it. He didn't really deal with it. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness, picking that up, verse 25, at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The death of Jesus put forth the righteousness of God because, listen carefully, the Old Testament casts a doubt upon the righteousness of God. Think about that. The Old Testament casts a doubt upon the righteousness of God. Not through statements of the Old Testament. Over and over again, the Old Testament Testament affirms the righteousness of God. Like Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. His work is perfect. All His ways are just. 
He's a God of faithfulness without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. Daniel 4.37 All His works are true and all His ways are just. The Scripture is clear. God is, is righteous and just in all His ways. But the question comes about in the way that God dealt with sin. See, God, God forgave those who sinned in the Old Testament without a sufficient sacrifice. Oh, sure, they offered up animals. But in the end, animals could only cover sin. They can't take away sins. And so God merely passed over the, Old Testament, the sins of the Old Testament saints. And to pass over sins calls your fairness and righteousness into question. Because people might say, no, 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 God was fair. Well, where did He punish the sin? They say, well, in the slain lamb, it might be argued. But really, that's not a worthy sacrifice because a human sin requires a human sacrifice. So without a sufficient sacrifice, God's justice is called into account because His justice means He can't pass over a transgression. Like, like let me tell you an illustration. Suppose there's a man, a wicked man in Rockford, all right? And uh, his, his sin was that he kidnapped children. And, and he would drive around school, especially as it was letting off. And, and he would coerce children into his car. And, and, and he would, once he got them in the car, he had automatic locks and he locked the door. And he, he drove out to a remote cabin in the woods someplace in Galena. And while he was there, he would take these children, he would torture them, molest them, kill them, and eat them. And, and this was taking place for years. The number? 50 children he did this with over the years. Finally, the police caught him, placed him in prison. And then think about his trial. Over the, the days and weeks of his trial, crimes, the facts would come out in all the horror and the city of Rockford would be shocked at the crimes of this man. And, and then imagine the day of sentencing coming and the judge reviewing all the crimes that were committed, pronouncing a, a guilty verdict, reviewing the appropriate sentence, which is death by legal in, injection, and, and yet the judge, though, said this. You know, Mr... Mr. Sir, you deserve to die for your crimes. But I'm such a kind and gracious judge. I can't see you suffer in this way. I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to pass over those sins and you're a free man. What would happen in Rockford? What do you think would happen? I think there would be spontaneous hostility in the streets. I think a spontaneous outcry would arise against this judge. The Rockford Register Star would have huge headlines, you know, oust this judge. A, a movement um, to remove him from office would, would arise, and I doubt he would last even a week in office. Why? Because the judge was unjust. Why? Because he just overlooked the transgression. Over, now, now, yes, the transgressions were huge, Okay? But for God, every transgression against infinite holiness is an infinite sin. For God to transgress and overlook any sin brings injustice to us. God, we can't live in a city with such unjust judges. And as God passed over sin, question came of His righteousness. Right? But, but here's, here's the glory of the Gospel, right? Is that Jesus Christ took the punishment that our sins deserved. 
Thereby, God can be righteous because He didn't pass over the sin. He punished Jesus. And yet, He also can justify us because no accusation remains because the punishment was executed all fell on Him. And that's the meaning of Romans 3, 25 and 26. In the bloody sacrifice of Jesus, God demonstrated His righteousness because He actually punished sin by punishing Jesus. In the bloody sacrifice of Jesus, God's able to justify us. Why? Because we no longer stand condemned. Our debt has been paid. And thus God can be, as it says in verse 26, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But apart from the sacrifice of Jesus, the justice of God, the righteousness of God is called into question. That's why in Romans 3.21 it speaks about how the righteousness of God has been manifested. Because justice has finally been served at the cross of Christ. The sins that He passed over and forgave were taken away, punished in Jesus Christ. His spilled blood was sufficient payment for our sins and for the sins of those committed in the first covenant. So let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Hopefully you can understand this now. For this reason, He's the mediator of a new covenant. He's the one that stands between us and God of this new covenant. So that since a death has taken place, as the death of Jesus... It took place for the redemption, not only of our sins, but also for the redemption of those transgressions that were committed under the first covenant with a purpose that those who have been called, that is called of God, the believers in God, those may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That's what verse 15 is talking about. The saints of the Old Testament redeemed the death of Jesus so that they might receive their eternal inheritance in heaven. And, and they'll be at the same heaven that we are at. Jesus said, Many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And He's talking there about beyond the Jews. Many are going to recline with the fathers. They'll receive their inheritance through Christ just as we receive our inheritance through Christ. This word inheritance is picked up right there at the end of verse 15. And then in verses 16 and 17, he begins to speak about an inheritance and how an inheritance works. And he uses an analogy. In verses 16 and 17, he uses an analogy of a, of a will, a last will and covenant. And here we have the word covenant used, used as in the way of describing what we would describe as wills. These verses, he says this, he says, where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Or you can read where a will, a last will and testament is. For a last will and testament is only valid when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. I mean, think about the way a will works. As you write up your wishes about how you want your state divided when you die. 25% of my portfolio goes to the charities of my choice. Here they are. The rest of it is divided equally among my children. Uh, I want to give my piano to my musically inclined child. I want to give my snowmobile to the son who loves the outdoors. I want to give all my furniture to my child that just bought a home. And I want to give this precious piece of jewelry to a friend of mine who gives in California. And they all get distributed. Right? Is that how it works, Phil? I'm hoping that's how it works. <laughs> You can make your will short. I give all my possessions to the poor. 
You can do that. Or you can make it long and as exotic and intricate as you want. Like I, I thought about, you know, maybe you have a heart for education of your grandchildren. Maybe you can set aside money in a trust that says this money can only be used for their education. If they don't use it on education, it gets forfeited and goes to charity. That just kind of will force your grandchildren, help them get educated. Maybe you got a vision for a grand family reunion that you always talked about for years and never happened. Maybe you can say, I want to see this family reunion happen. And uh, I'm going to pay for all travel expenses if anybody wants to come to the family reunion, right? Even you know, right, those long-lost relatives in London, right? Just come. We want to have a big family, you know, in honor of me. You can mourn me, maybe you say. I don't know. But whatever you want to come to pass regarding your earthly possessions, you can write there in your will. And I hope you have a will. If you can afford it, a trust. Right, Phil? A trust is better. And you can talk to Phil about that if you want. Anyway, the point though of verses 16 and 17 is that none of these things you write in your will will ever take effect until you die. They are instructions after you die. In fact, that was the shock of the prodigal son's request, right? He requested his share of the estate before his father died. And many have commented, well, he just said, I wish you were dead, Dad. That was a shock in that. See, it's death that brings the document to life. And so also with the New Covenant. Apart from the death of Christ, the New Covenant would have been paper and promises. But the death of Christ gave the New Covenant life. It is what gave, chapter 8, verse 12, God the ability to be merciful to their iniquities and remember their sins no more. The only way to do that was through the death of Jesus. Wherever you have a covenant, you need a death to take place. And thus the importance of the death of Jesus. Now if this is true, that where a covenant is, there must be the death of the one who made it. It must be true of the first covenant. It must be true with the covenant that God made with Moses. And that's what verse 18 says. Okay, here's the point of the, the analogy of the illustration applied. Verse 18, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. And now he's going to explain what Darren read for us in Exodus 24. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, that was Exodus chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments, and then chapter 21 and 22 and 23, which give general laws about how a nation should work, after these things have been read by Moses to all the people according to the law, and then in Exodus 24 we see all the people saying, yes, everything the Lord has spoken we will do, and yes, we will be obedient. Then at that point, in order to confirm the deal... Because God had presented His case and they affirmed that yes, they will keep their end of the deal. God says, well, let's have a sacrifice. So, Moses took the blood of the calves. Now, there's some extra things added in here that aren't in Exodus 24, but they're well attested to tradition like Josephus speaks about how the, the blood of calves or, or goats was also offered in water and scarlet wool and hyssop were mixed up as well and sprinkled in these ways. But this is what God tells us. So Moses took this thing, this concoction, the water, scarlet wool hyssop, kind of like a brush, and he sprinkled both the book itself. So imagine, he's taking this sacrifice, he takes the, the blood from this, he sprinkles both the book itself, and he sprinkles all the people. He's just shattering it out there, and all of you are getting blood-stained clothes that you can't wash. But anyway, we're pushing it out there, and then Moses says, this is a straight quote from Exodus 24, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And the same way, Moses sprinkled both the tabernacle, so you can just see him kind of going along the tabernacle, the tent, and all the vessels of the ministry. And he's got you know, the Ark of the Covenant.